0: Together today for one gathering, uh, this is a real blessing. Uh, one of the exciting things that James and I, along with Thomas and Dan Schur, uh, Thomas Hopkins, did, uh, especially throughout the fall, which is probably something we should get back to. As uh, we got together every single, every other Thursday morning, we prayed for the needs of our community. And I just want to say, it is such an awesome joy to be able to look around this room today. And see answers to prayer. People that were prayed for. Um, folks that didn't know Jesus, coming to know Jesus, baptisms. I mean, it's been just an exciting, exciting year. And I want you guys to know, those that are in Forward will, that you guys are so near and dear. I know to my heart, and I'm, and I'm praying the rest of Church of the Ward's heart, and I know that as well. But you guys, at Christmas as well, you chose us at Church of the Ward as your uh, as your choice for your Christmas offering. And you you raised and donated $10,000 to the ministry of Church of the Ward, And that is absolutely incredible. And I just want to thank you for that. Um, I'll give you a little update because I think it's important. We baptized 11 people uh, so far this year. And that's just awesome. Uh, so absolutely awesome, uh, and we've actually, we used uh, your main site's baptismal tank uh, to do those, and we did them right in the vinyl, which is where we meet downtown right now, which was really exciting too, and we only put a hole in it our second time. Uh, the outside of the, the tank is made of, it's constructed with drywall and so during transport it got a hole in it so i'm sorry about that i guess your guy vern farrow who does uh work over at uh, the main site he'll be taking care of that but thank you so much uh your contributions are just so so appreciated and we're excited about god's doing the life of church of the ward if you could be praying still continually for us uh, especially in these days for more leaders um We just, we didn't need more Christian leaders and people that are mature in the faith to come along. Some of our early on Christians, um, that would be a very, just a very, very specific prayer right now. Christian leadership is important, especially mature Christian leaders, to care for the needs of the flock of God that maybe aren't as mature. On that, there is one thing that I have to do. It's kind of Church of the Ward business-esque, and that is affirm three men that have been affirmed by our deacons to be elders as part of Church of the Ward, and so 21 days ago I put it to our main Church of the Ward family and I said hey three guys have been affirmed to become elders as part of Church of the Ward if you see any issue with it meaning have you seen them do any like shady business deals or do you know that they're being rebels on the side? We need to know about it because they can't be elders. And uh, praise the Lord, 21 days have passed and there's been no concerns at all, only excitement. So uh, today I just need to say we're affirming uh, Jeff Hesselink, who is here, Matt Klink-Eltink, and Jeffrey Bousfield as elders in Church of the Ward, and we're very excited for their leadership as they'll come alongside me. Church of the Ward and Forward Church are not churches that are run by one sole individual, They're churches that are run by a plurality of elders. And so we're really, really excited to see what God's going to do in and through the ministry of Church of the Ward and through these men that have felt and aspired to become elders and have now been affirmed in that position. So that's how we kind of do it at Church of the Ward. Uh, Before we jump in today, let's just take a quick word of prayer. Uh, My heart is especially heavy right now for another church right now that I know of that's going to be receiving an announcement very shortly that it's going to like really, really uh, probably send some huge waves through it. Um, so if I seem a little bit off today, that's that's the reason. I'm just prayerfully. And, and with another church in mind right now that's, that's going through a really tough, tough, tough time right now. So can we just pray? Um, I'll pray for that situation, but then let's just jump in and see what God has to say to us. And I'm also going to leave you a couple seconds here before I jump in to just pray yourself. Like, sense the Holy Spirit this morning. Really say, Holy Spirit, what is it you want to share with me today? Because I believe the topic that I'm going to talk about today, if we don't get this right, then we're not going to have an influence on our world. And I truly believe that. So let's just be praying that your heart would be moved by the words of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in and through your life right now. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us. God, for those of us that have chosen to follow you, you're you're not only with us, you're inside of us. You're dwelling. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. God, that, Holy Spirit, you would completely light up, unveil the areas of our hearts and our minds that are not in tune with you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work of conviction pray that you would do the work of guiding us into the truth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just do a work in us today that you've never done before. Change our hearts. God, I pray if there's anybody even in this room today that has not received you as Lord and Savior and King, that they would do so today. And God, I pray for this uh, brother and this family that are part of the global church. I pray for them this morning as they um, hear an announcement move and speak and unveil, God, what it is that you're doing in the life of this man. And God, I pray that this church, God, would love. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So you guys have been doing this series called Word on the Street, biblical, biblical living for living practical lives. I think it's a great idea. Um, For Church of the Ward folk, this is going to look a little bit different because we're kind of just hammering through the book of Mark. So we've been taking 8 to 10 verses. Like really running into them head on. We're only in like chapter five, and it's been uh, like seven months. So we're kind of like pressing on. That's okay. We'll probably be done another year and a half. Uh, so this will be a little bit different for us today. You're going to hear me teach a little bit differently because we're looking at this a little bit more thematically and across the Bible. How do we want to look at the topic specifically of how do we treat those that are not part of the church? How do we treat those that we don't necessarily agree with? How do we as Christians live in the world, but not of the world? Now, the reason that this is very, very, very important is because we live in the world, If you have been a Christian for a long time, you will know the struggle and the challenge and the tension that you live in with wanting to be obedient to God, living according to his desires and ways, but yet also working with people and living amongst people around you that don't agree with you and may even mock the things that you say and that you believe. And what has happened historically is Christians have either separated themselves completely from the world in which they live, And as a result, the culture kind of looks upon that and and thinks of them as self-righteous, hypocritical, judgmental. And there's been this separatist mentality. And in Scripture, I I believe, as we'll study today, that we see no sign in any way of the church supposed to be separating itself from the world, to live in two completely different ones. Certainly, there is the aspect in which we as Christians live according to a different set of rules and principles. As we'll see today, I'm going to call that citizenship to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God. But then on the other side, we're also supposed to live in our world, and as Jesus was called, a friend of sinners, a lover of the people that are in our world, a a person that desires to not only have a relationship or kind of an acquaintance, but actually seek relationships with people that are not part of the church. And so today I want to answer that question How do we treat people? that are not presently in the church, that are outside, that maybe are strangers to us, and that we don't agree with, so that we don't have to live either in the separatist, the self-righteous, and we also don't become people that run about and do whatever the world is doing, because there's also that side of, of a world of Christians that they would call themselves, but are continuing to live as the world would like them to live. How do we live in the middle? That's what I want to talk about today, and this is a subject that is quite near and dear to my heart, and I know it is to James's as well, because we have planted, been part of Jesus planting churches that are present in neighborhoods that haven't said we're going to kind of meet in this church building on this um, on this hill or in this way and live separately. And I'm not I'm not in any way trying to diss Church of Our Lady there. I'm just. It is on a hill, but that's not what I mean. But like living separate from the culture, but living in it. Growing up for me, this is near and dear to my heart because growing up, uh, being good was really, really, really important to me. And my parents, I don't know if it was just a generational thing, but they didn't have any non-Christian friends. They never had non-Christians over for dinner. They, when we had neighbors, we'd kind of hang out. When the street party was going on, my parents would put us to bed early and kind of bunker down in the house. And this isn't anything negative against my parents. I love them and I'm so thankful for the way in which they raised me. But there was this, this, I don't know, it's this mentality that we don't hang out with them. We do our own thing. And every now and then at work we'll run into them and they'll live differently than us. But for the most part we're going to live separate from them. We'll engage when we have to but not because we want to. And so for me, growing up, being good was really important. And I kind of saw, even in then my own life, this desire to kind of live separately and not live as a participant in what's going on. And then God did some huge work in my life, called me to a place of actual repentance that said, I need to change my way of thinking on this. And this was birthed through the scriptures saying, this is actually how you're supposed to be living to the place that Andre and I sold our home in one neighborhood, moved to another one, and just started loving the people that lived around us and very intentionally have been trying to get involved in lives of people that are not Christians. Um, In my previous place of employment, I worked at Lakeside, and again, nothing against my time at Lakeside, but I was very specifically, I had this life at Lakeside and then this life at home. And I really desired as part of God's work on my life that all of my life would be the same, that I didn't have to try to separate church life from Matt and Andrea life, they would all be the same. And I believe that's the place that God is calling all of us. So what I want to do this morning, here's kind of the plan, okay? I'm a fairly simple person, I hope. Um, And what I'm going to do is we're just going to go through creation to the end, restoration, redemption. So Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to point out specific scriptures along the way that highlight for us what are God's desires. Then some instructional um, verses on how we're to live in the world yet not of it. And then at the end, the very end, I'm going to point out eight points uh, from all of what we've studied. So sometimes you get a teaching that there's points being made the whole way through. Prayerfully, I'll be making some points along the way, but specifically applicable, therefore, let's do this, are going to be at the end. Okay, so you're not going to see a lot of slides changing behind me, probably for about the first 15, 20 minutes. Is that okay? All right, very good. Well, let's start at the very beginning. In the beginning, God... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? We as Christians uh, affirm and believe that God created this world that we live in and created it good. He created it perfect. And then he decided to do something, which he didn't have to do. Remember this. God did not have to create you. God did not have to create human beings, but he chose to. And it says this in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us This is one of the first references to the Trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. There is something different about you than your animals. Maybe you have dogs. Maybe you've seen cows. Uh, My wife and I, we now have eight chickens, okay? Uh, We had five, and then this week we made the decision we're going to get three more. We're going to have eight chickens, and now we're in the process of trying to mix three chickens in with a flock of five. I thought that I could, this is total tangent, but I think it's exciting. I thought that I could just take these three chickens and put them into the flock of the other five, and everything would be fine. If you know anything about chickens, know anything about farming, you can't do that. Uh, What happens, and we tried it yesterday, We even took two out of the pen of the five, put the three in there, and the top boss went and started gnawing at the other one's neck, all right? There is a pecking order. That phrase, pecking order, was created from the life of chickens. Now, (laughs) as much as uh, this is maybe a similarity to you and the chicken culture in that we have our in-groups and out-groups, and when somebody tries to come in, the boss man tries to take them out, you're very different than a chicken, All right, Uh, You are different than a chicken. You were made in the likeness of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, meaning this relational God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tim Keller describes it as this dance. They're dancing with one another. They're encouraging the other. They're supporting one another. It's this beautiful dance. And God created you and I for relationship to live in this ongoing dance with him. To make much of him and he blesses us. It's a beautiful dance. Not always in the way that we want to be blessed, but God created us in his image and his likeness. We were created a relational people. There is something inside of you that you just desire community. You desire relationship with other people. It's beautiful. It's been given to you by God. And then the beauty that we can have and have conversation with other people and grow in community. It's why people are so drawn, if not to God initially, I believe it is in a sense God because it's his likeness, but to community and churches. Because this is a place that people can come, meet others, and maybe you yourself are a person that was drawn initially to the Christian community, not necessarily God, but over time he kind of worked on your heart. And you're like, well, this community doesn't exist just because. It's not a community center. This is a people in love with a God that loves them. And they want to serve. And so they have this relationship. This is us creating the likeness of God. God then gives humanity certain desires, um, rules uh, to follow. He says this to humanity, be fruitful and increase in number. God starts by saying, have kids. Have sex. Have children. It's a good thing. You should do it. I created you for it. And then he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Now, unfortunately, certain groups of Christians have taken this and said, we're going to rule the planet and da-da-da-da-da, subdue, don't listen. You have to listen to me. This is actually what the Hebrew words are meaning. Rule means to partner with God in taking the world somewhere. Isn't that beautiful? Humanity, rule. Partner with me in taking the world somewhere. Don't just remain stagnant in your separatist mentality. We're going to take the world somewhere together. Doing life with God. Then subdue means to harness the raw materials that make up the planet and make something beautiful. In other words, we are to work for human flourishing. We're to take the raw materials of this earth, Partner with God and taking the world to a better place. Isn't that awesome? We're made in the likeness of God. He says, now let's do this together. Don't just kind of go and do it on your own. So the deists that believe there's a God but he's not really involved are in essence wrong. If you look at the creation account, because God says, we're in this together with. It's beautiful. And then Genesis 2.16, God gives them one stipulation. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. You can have every single one that you want. And I don't think that there was only two there. That's not the reference, right? Every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives humanity this plethora of options. And guess what they end up doing? They go for the one that they're not supposed to touch. All right? A lot of people now live in this, like, anger towards Adam and Eve. So you mean that all of the world is now sinful because of those two? That's not very fair. I bet you, if you were in their position, you'd do the exact same thing. Wouldn't you? Because even in our world now, you have all of these options of good, yet you go for the one thing that's bad. Sin inside of you. The nature right? The sin nature, by by choice and by nature are we sinners. Now in this design, in this creation, God designed this so that we'd all live in perfect relationship with him, that there would be no strife, that, that everybody that lived and would live forever, this isn't like they were going to live to 70, 80, 90, and pass away. God's original design was for them to live forever, to have children, and to be this perfect community. And then what we eventually see in Genesis 3, I, I've oftentimes heard it said, it's the great disruption. Everything that God designed and created changed. And you get to Genesis 4, the first murder happens. Cain takes out Abel, which shows the sin nature and practice and choice. But prior... To that, Genesis 1 and 2, God designed us for relationship, for perfect relationship, that we wouldn't have this idea of separation from the world, that we'd all live in the world and would all be unto the glory of God. But then sin entered, and then here we go. So the very question that we're trying to answer today is a result of the fall, the great disruption. So how do we live in this great disruption? Well, flowing from that, we're going to skip over a few stories. We're going to get to Abraham. All right, and God said to Abraham, through you, I will bless the nations of the earth. That's actually one of the first references to Jesus Christ, because through the lineage of Israel, Jesus would eventually come, through you, I will bless the nations of the earth. Now, if you want to get to know hospitality in the life of Abraham, you don't have to look very far. In Genesis 18, Abraham welcomes three guests into his home and prepares a lavish meal for them. All right, find out later these could be angelic beings, but he hosts them in his home. It's even suspected that the third being was Jesus himself present with them. But the go-to response for Abraham when these three guests show up is, come in, let me prepare for you a meal. All right, 18 chapters into the Bible, hospitality is already on display for us to see. And I don't mean hospitality in that only preparing meals. I mean hospitality in being a friend to a stranger, being friend to a sinner, someone we don't agree with. Abraham obviously was already living in this new covenant mentality, his chosen people, his family, but yet he's already living. Guests, come on in. Let's hang out. Let's have a party. He brings them in. Uh, You see further the desire for this hospitality in Genesis 19. Lot, Abraham's nephew, offers his daughter rather than his guests to be harmed. This is a pretty messed up story, all right? Genesis 19, guests, people show up at Lot's place and are like, give us the guests. We want to take advantage of them. And Lot, the the cultural thing there was that he was supposed to not allow harm to come to his guests. So it would be better for him culturally to give the daughters rather than giving the guests. I know, very, very strange. Uh, this is some of the stuff that you skip over when you're reading through the Bible with your kids. I will just, I will just, that didn't happen. Let's just skip that one. But that was the case in hospitality in Old Testament, Old, Old Testament culture, was that if a guest showed up at your house, you showed them hospitality. Um, there's a movie out right now. I believe it just came out on DVD. It's called Lone Survivor. Uh, if you don't like violence and you're a little bit blown away by how much swearing is sometimes in films nowadays, don't touch it, okay? Um, I did watch this film um, it's a great film if you're looking for camaraderie. What's that word? Camaraderie? There we go. Um, it's a great one for that. And also, uh, at the end of the film, I'm sorry, I don't think I, I'm really blowing this for you if you haven't seen it. If you, if, you, if you haven't seen it, I'll just tell you the end, and then you don't have to watch it and watch the, the, the language. But at the end of the movie, uh, the movie kind of gives it away Lone Survivor. How many people survive? One. Okay? So at the end of the movie, (laughs) at the end of the film, uh, this this guy who's Mark Wahlberg, what a guy, eh? He is, at the end of the movie, he's the one that survives, and he's in a position where uh, his position at the time is compromised. And what he ends up doing is he falls into this water thing, and then these locals find him. Now, according to that village... He, by the way, is being chased by Al-Qaeda, okay? And based upon their uh, culture, this village, when they see him, he's now become their guest and they have to um, protect him. So what ends up happening is that these villagers, these people that live in this country are like, come back to our house. And they actually, as the movie ends up ending, the the people, the Al-Qaeda, come to the come to the village and want to blow it up. But they're like, no, stop, stop, stop. We've got to protect our guests. So they put themselves in harm's way, even though these men that are Al-Qaeda are part of their same nation, they put themselves in harm's way to protect this guest that they have been found. Isn't that awesome? As, a, as just a quick point, I think that's the way we should be. Shouldn't we? That when someone shows up at our home, our number one response isn't, hey, how can I get you out of here as fast as possible? But rather, you're now my guest I'm not going to let any harm come to you. I'm going to let you actually come in, hang out. I'll actually make you a beautiful meal too. Do you want it? Or just, hey, come on back. Let me show you my chickens. Like, that, that's my go-to nowadays. Like, let me show you this cool project I've got going in the backyard. And people love that. I mean, chickens, really? Okay. So, go-to. Fast forward from there. We get to Egypt. The Israelites are, are slaves in Egypt. I mean, that is a weird culture. And they had to serve the people that they were in um, and being slaves too. Uh, fast forward from there, believe it or not, the Israelites get out of slavery, thank you God uh, and the, they leave and as a separate nation now God gives them directives, commands as to how they are supposed to, this is very specific, how they're supposed to live as a nation surrounded by other nations. So in essence, these directives or commands can actually be inherited by us to say how are we supposed to live as a nation under God Surrounded by different views around us. So the word that's often used in the Old Testament is the word sojourner. Uh, It's the Hebrew word toshab. Can everyone say toshab? And what it means is a foreign resident, a settler, or a tenant. All right, so even though this people are to be a separate nation, God gives them directives and command for in the event that a sojourner or a tenant comes into their presence. Uh, Exodus 22 verse 21, this is what it says. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, uh, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is what God says. You were once in exile. You were once tenants in another land, so you understand what it looks like to be one. Therefore, treat them, do not oppress them like you were oppressed. Isn't that beautiful? God plays off of what they experience to give them the commands of how they're supposed to live presently. It's like saying, listen, you're all sojourners in this land as well. You know what it feels like to be manipulated and treated or mocked by the people that live around us. So don't do the same thing to them. Very easy, all right? Then the next one, Leviticus 19, verse 10. And you, this is funny, because none of us have vineyards, and I don't know the, 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 the present uh, illustration. But you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So built into the Levitical law for the Israelite people is, if you're gathering your crop, from your vineyard, and some grapes fall on the ground, leave them there, and if if there's uh, sojourners or tenants or people passing through the land, they can go up and take them home for themselves, right? So let's say you have a garden in your backyard, All right? Uh, And you're picking stuff off. And, like, you've got these beautiful tomatoes. Like, you're just excited. These tomatoes have grown beautifully. And one drops on the ground. It's still good. The biblical command at that point would be, like, leave it there. You might have a neighbor that might come by that doesn't agree with you, everything that you do. But they'll see the tomato, and they might want it for themselves. That's a good thing. I just finished a book called The Year of Living Biblically uh, by a guy named A.J. Jacobs. I highly recommend it. You've got to read it. This is a non-Christian guy that tried to live according to the rules of the Bible, uh, literally, for a year. All right? It's hilarious. I read it on vacation, and I laughed probably through the whole book. But he tried to live literally to commands like this. And it was actually very, very funny. So just, you got to check it out. Leviticus 19, verse 33 says this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's kind of repeating himself, but sometimes we need repetition to get the point across, right? You were a stranger. You know what that felt like. So treat strangers with love, respect, and dignity. And then Proverbs 25, verse 21 to 22 says this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Strange. But... If they're thirsty, if they're hungry, we are to love them. Now, obviously, there's some restrictions, all right? And these are the biblical restrictions for how are we, in the Old Testament, at least, of how are we supposed to live in this land, but yet not live among them, okay? Because some of us might be like, so where's the negative stuff? Where are we supposed to draw the line? This is where God draws the line for his people. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Rough. Uh, Moms and dads, don't pass on your kids to marry people that do not believe the same things as you. Okay, This is Old Testament civil law you might end up doing this, but I believe the same application that they might turn away from the Lord and serve the gods of who that person is worshiping, and that's not necessarily a golden image in front of them, but the lifestyle in which they live, the money in which they spend, uh, they will turn to serve. It, the human, the human um, condition is not one of, do you worship? It's who you worship. All of us worship. You either worship God or you worship the things that are not of God. So we're all still very spiritual in that sense. We have things that we worship. And the same directives and commands here is, hey, with your kids, it'd be really good for them to marry someone that believes the same things as them, or else the things that they believe will be minimized. And they may end up actually serving and worshiping uh, the things of the other person and not the things that I desire for them, all right? Then Leviticus 20, verse 26 says this, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. We are a people set apart by God. He has chosen us as his children. He's adopted us into his family. You can go into Romans read all about the language of adoption, that we are now co-heirs with Christ to receive the same things that Christ has inherited because of what he has done for us. So we're part of the same family. And then later, the Israelite people in exile, Jeremiah 29, verse 7 says this. This is a direct, I believe, a command for us as well. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As people that even though we are citizens of the kingdom of God who live in this nation, we are supposed to care for the good of our present city. And we are to pray for it on its behalf. Uh, presently, I'm working with some others, and we are planning a week of prayer and fasting for the city of Guelph that will hopefully unite all the evangelicals from across the city to pray for our city. There's going to be worship gatherings in different places across the city. It's going to be from September 28th to October 4th. And this is really the desire of that, that we would be a people that would come together and pray for our city and seek its good rather than living separate. Remember, subdue, rule. Live with me in partnership, caring for the things that are around you. Now, then there's this 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during that time, there was new exile. There was new rulers that came into place and into being. And the challenge and what has happened, I believe, then and is also happening now, is that we can fall into the place of, well, okay, I know that I should love the people around me. But at the same time, I'm maybe a little bit better than them because I believe in God and they don't. And so what happened culturally, and what happened was that the Jews tried to separate themselves from everybody else. They didn't like welcoming people in for food, and they separated themselves. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and we've got the Pharisees, we've got the Sadducees, we've got the Sanhedrin, basically controlling the lives of the people, and not wanting them to in any way engage with the culture at large. Live separate. They're unclean. This is why when Jesus goes and does ministry, uh, at one point he goes to the Decapolis, and he heals a man that is possessed by thousands. Thousands of demons, the, the, the Jews, his disciples that are with him are like, We shouldn't even be here. And Jesus, why are you talking to this guy? Because the culture over those 400 years has changed so dramatically that now people are trying to live separate. So Jesus enters into a culture of like religious extremism. You're either in or you're out, and if you're out, I'm not even gonna eat with you. All right? So this is the world that Jesus enters into. Uh, hospitality was still a huge part of the culture. Uh, if you were to travel, It's not like you'd show up in a city and there'd be like a multitude of inns. If you've ever been to Orlando, Florida, um, and you've seen the amount of hotels that are there, it's crazy because everyone travels there and, and does the whole Orlando thing. It wouldn't have been like that in those days. There would be a lack of inns. So it was almost expected if a guest shows up, you host them in your home. But only in those days, if you were a Jew, you could hang out with us. If you're not, well, you're kind of unclean, so go find somewhere else. And then Jesus enters in. And we're just going to kind of go through some of the things that Jesus did. Uh, Jesus' ministry was characterized by going to the stranger. Mark 1, verses 32 to 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. All right, Jesus, right at this point, is in Capernaum. And he's just done a day of ministry, goes home. They believe he was in the home of Peter, a home at that point that would have uh, accommodated about 30 to 40 people, Peter's family. Uh, Jesus is just healed. I believe it's Peter's mother. And sundown meant that the Sabbath was now over, and the whole city shows up at the house to be healed by Jesus. Now, Jesus, he's already been doing a whole day of ministry. Uh, If you were me, I would have probably said, okay, guys, sorry, just need a break. Jesus, like, lets him in. Come on in, guys. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he also cast out demons. Now question, do you think that Jesus agreed with everyone that was brought to him? Probably not. (laughs) Like, hey, what's going on? I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. Do you believe it? You don't? Okay, I can't heal you. See ya. No. He responded to the need when the need was brought forth to him. And what we're supposed to do as Christians is follow in the ways of Jesus. Next, Mark 2, verses 16 to 17. This is the Pharisees that are saying this. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Believing that they weren't ones themselves. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So why do we sometimes as Christians say, I can't hang out with the super sinning folk? When you come to know Jesus, does that, make, does that make you not a sinner anymore? No, of course not. You still sin, but Jesus has declared you a saint. But you still live in the flesh, so you still desire the things of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit, we pray, take over my life. And Jesus was constantly responding to the standards and sinners who approached him. Then Mark 3, 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is redefining that the Christian family is more valuable than the blood family. Right here. And his mom was standing outside wanting to him to come home because he was being said to be a crazy all right, next verse, Matthew 5, or Mark 5, verse 2. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This is the Gentile. Jesus still does love this Gentile. Matthew five forty three to 44. This is just me telling you a lot of verses to try to prove the point that if we're to live as Jesus lived... We've got to get in line with what he did. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've heard the best way to forgive an enemy is to pray for them. So just start praying for the person you don't agree with. Watch how God changes your heart for that person. Matthew 25, 35 to 40. For I was hungry, this is beautiful, for I was hungry, this is Jesus speaking, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when... Did we see you sick or in person and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What Jesus is saying, and he's actually identifying himself with strangers or people we don't agree with by saying, as you treat them, treat them as you would treat me. The way that I see this, and we'll look at it more in the application, if somebody shows up at your door, treat them as if Jesus showed up. If Jesus in the flesh showed up at my door, I'd probably make him a sweet meal. i say, Andre, we've got to get to the grocery store. We've got to get, like, the best stuff. Jesus is here. So why do we treat people differently? Because Jesus says, as you did to the one of the least of these, you did unto me. Now, what are the objections or conditions? Well, there's no conditions or objections if this person is a non-Christian. If they are a Christian, there are some things. Um, And this is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, You might be saying, but I don't agree with the people that live around me. Don't I have to take like one or two people and like call them out and say they need to change before I can hang out with them or invite them to be part of my church? No. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, if it's a brother, meaning if it's a person within the church, so the only people we're technically allowed to call out in the church are other people within the church. Those that live outside, leave them alone. Love them, that through their love, Through your love for them, they might be influenced by the character of God. You don't call them out and say, "Well, you got to really get that figured out." They don't agree with you on, on a lot of different things. So why are you calling them out on that thing? Love them. Uh, as a note for those of us in the church, this is why if you become a Christian and Pastor James or some of your elders start approaching you and saying, hey, there's this area of your life that you really, you know, you've declared Jesus as your Lord and as your King. Now what you've got to do is start living in obedience to that King who gave everything for you. And this area of your life, well, you're not living in obedience to the King. And if you truly say that you love this King, you've got to give everything from your life to Him. If you don't, it's treason against your king who loves you and gave himself for you. That's judging within the church. That's allowed. But here's the conditions of judgment. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Judge not that you may not be judged. This is the condition which you can't judge. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrites! This is Jesus, okay? He's not lovey-dovey all the time. You hypocrites! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly into the speck of your brother's eye. What Jesus is saying is, he's not saying don't judge at all. He's saying if you do, be willing to look and do some self-examination. Be a self-aware person to say, if I'm going to approach this person and call out the sin in their life, I must also be willing to say, I'm not perfect. This is some stuff that I'm working through. But in order for us to be the community of God that moves towards Jesus, we've all got to come under his lordship. Because it would be impossible to do that or even go anywhere if we're not calling each other out. So it's not like, let's just like everyone do whatever they want to do within the church. That's totally cool. No, then you're, then you're totally taking away the truth of the word of God, what his desire is for us as his people. And you're not, you're not living in obedience. And how many people are lining up at the doors of uh, churches that say everybody's welcome to believe whatever the heck they want? Nobody's doing that because there's not very much conviction to what those people believe. We believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We believe that because of that, we live in obedience to him, because of the grace, because we still sin. It's not like, again, you become a Christian, you're like, I'm all good now, and I'm better than you guys. No, you still sin. So live as somebody that is still a sinner, saved by grace, and therefore wants somebody else to experience that same grace. It's a beautiful thing, and Jesus leads us in that. Now we go to Paul in the epistles, and Paul is going to coin this phrase that is a Greek word, philoxenos. Can you say that? One, two, three. Philoxenos, and what this means is to that we are to love strangers. We're not to be cliqueish. It's the verb for the action of loving a person. Now, this is rooted in the word philos, which is a Greek word that means loved, dear, befriended, or kind. And the Greek word xenos uh, looks kind of a little bit like Xena, but with an X. Um, Strange, foreign, not of one's family. So Paul takes these two words, joins them together, says phylexenos, which again means you're going to love a stranger or a foreigner. You're going to love people that are not of your own family. And this is what he says about that. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he specifically says that those men that are are affirmed as elders in the church need to be philoxenos. So if you aspire to the position of elder, you have to be a friend of strangers. You have to be a friend of sinners. You can't be one if you're not that. And again, this isn't the hospitality that, come on in for dinner. This does not mean the pastor's home is constantly always open all hours of the night, all right? That would be abusing this. This philoxenos means you're a friend to the stranger. You're a friend to the sinner, as Jesus was a friend to the stranger and a friend to the sinner. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Isn't it interesting that Paul sees that as one of the qualifications for someone that wants to be an overseer or an elder in a local church? They have to be a friend of sinners. I don't know, I just think that's a, a bit crazy. He, he would say, this is one of those things you can't skip over. But yet, I've seen this, people be disobedient to this throughout the life of the church. Growing up, for me, I know I've seen elders, they have no friends outside the church. They try to separate themselves from them. But this is one we cannot miss out. Titus 1, verses 7 to 8, says this again about overseers. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, But hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then in 1 Peter 4, verses 8 to 9, it says this for the general public. This is for all of us who call ourselves Christians, okay? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This area of hospitality is to the stranger. It's not solely to those that are already in the church. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then there's another word, and I know some of you guys don't study Greek. It's a bit of interest to me, not an enormous interest. But then there's this other word that the Old Testament uses, which is philoxenia. (laughs) So there's philoxenos, which is the verb, the action. Then there's philoxenia, which is the type of person. So we as Christians are called to be a type of person that loves sinners. So one, we're to be actioned action-oriented, we love strangers, then it's to be a noun, something that we are. It's part of our discipleship. says this, Romans 12, verse 13, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 1 to 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained un- angels unawares. This is a, rever- or a reference back to Genesis 18 when Abraham welcomed the strangers. And then James 2, verse 1, and then verses 8 to 9. Show no partiality. You can't show favoritism as a Christian. You can't have your in group, your clique, and those outside. No partiality. He says this. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin or being convicted by the law as transgressors. How often have we called out partiality or favoritism in the church as a sin? Show no partiality. Don't have favorites. Don't only invite the same people over for dinner inside and outside the church. Be a lover of all people. Don't just love the middle to upper class. Love everybody, no matter their class. They're a child of God. They were created by him. You've got to love them regardless. Now, objections or conditions. What does Paul say to those outside? Against them. Nothing. Once again, he only calls out those within the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, somebody could stop there and say, I'm sorry, I can't hang out with them because they're sexually immoral. Paul clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he says, I, I wrote you and said, don't associate with the sexually immoral. But he's like, but I'm not, I'm not talking about the ones outside of the church because then you'd have to leave the world all completely. You need to get in a spaceship. You need to take off. He's not talking about them. He says, I'm talking about the ones in the church, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now this is all written in context because there's a guy, part of the church, who is sleeping with a stepmom. Like, imagine that church. Imagine the rumors that were going around about that guy. But nobody was calling him out on it. They're like, "This guy's good to go." Says he's a Christian. What up, man? No, Paul says you can't put up with this stuff. He says he's a Christian, but's living in sin. Like, say, "Hey, buddy, do as Jesus did." One person goes to him and says, "Listen, uh, you can't be sleeping with your stepmom." No, I can. It's totally cool. I'm a Christian. Okay, then what does Jesus say to those inside? Two or three. Well, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Um, we have all like, just seen this in practice. You can't be doing this. What do you mean I can't be doing this? I'm a Christian. It's all good. Stepmom's awesome. Okay, if, he's not going to listen to two or three. Take the elders of the church. The elders of the church are involved now. Listen. Thing with the stepmom. Can't be doing that well, I don't care what you say. Um, I'm going to continue doing this. And Paul believes a sin within the church is so serious, and he takes it so serious that he says, ask them to leave. Because their sin will disrupt what God is doing in the rest. This person is unrepentant of the sin that is going on. Now, this is hard. This is hard. This is hard to live in practice. But remember who we're talking about. We're not talking about the people that are just like kind of hanging out with us or live next to us that are sleeping with their stepmoms. We hope that's not happening. We're not talking about their sin. What does it say here? It says, God judges those outside, purge the evil from among you. And the desire of that command is that this person will recognize their sin, recognize their lack of community, and desire restoration and reconciliation within the community. Church discipline is always to come under the desire for restoration. Restoration. That we pray that without this, that this person will desire to come back under the lordship of Christ and commit everything of their life to him. Alright, so, biblically, that's what it says. Revelation says this. 21 verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Chapter 22, 3 to 4, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What this means is that when Jesus returns, we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. That what we write about in Genesis 1 and 2 will find its completion in Revelation 21 and 22. We won't have to worry about how does this work, but in the meantime, we have a job to do in loving those who aren't already a part of the church. Sure, there's the restriction in the Old Testament, don't intermarry with them. As Paul says, don't become unequally yoked with non-believers. This can be in the business world, this can be in a marriage relationship, Across it because your beliefs will be minimized by theirs, but it doesn't mean we don't hang out with them. Let's not come to a place of self-righteousness that says, I won't hang out. Because Jesus, the incarnation means to put flesh on. Jesus hung out with people. He got street cred, and he loved people. And so that's what we're called to. Now, why, why do you need to do this? Because this is some of the how-to. This is the biblical foundation for how we're supposed to live in the world and love people. But where's the personal side of this? Where's the gospel? And this is what it says in Ephesians 2, 4 to 8. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Then verse 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What this means is that Christ went to the cross for you when you were a stranger. What this means is that before the foundation of the world, God saw your life and said, I'm going to adopt that person, even though in the meantime they might not believe in me, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but I will forgive them and love them as a stranger, and one day they'll come into my family, I will adopt them, and I'll still treat them with love. So when you are doing life, when you're seeing and you're, you're mixing in with the people in your neighborhood, see them as you were once seen by God that they are a stranger that you pursue because you and I were strangers of the living God until he adopted us in his family and he died for us prior when we are strangers and he continues to lay his life down for us when we become part of the family. This is the gospel. That we were far from God, brought into his family. What did we do to deserve that? Nothing. We were strangers, aliens, outside but he brought us in so that when we welcome and love the people that are out there in our world that we don't agree with, we're showing them the same love that Christ showed us when he died for us when we didn't agree with everything that he said and did. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. You're part of the family of God if you believe and confess him as Lord. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You were once a stranger, but you're no longer. Now you're a child of the Most High God who loves you and gave himself for you. Unbelievable. Now, you might be like, okay, that's already a lot of information. Here's our practical. You're like, what's some takeaways? Okay, I think we need that foundation. Now here's, uh, I have a number of takeaways for us. Number one, invite, invite, invite. And by invite, 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 I don't mean only invite people to your church gathered on a Sunday morning. The primary method of that can be, come do life with me. Uh, in Church of the Ward, we have weekly potluck dinners that groups of Christians host every single week. And we invite people into that. For us, that would be the desire that someone would show up there first on my couch or on our couches before they might show up on a Sunday morning. Because I want them to do life with me. I want to I you know, incarnate, put flesh on for people. So invite, invite, invite. This is the way of Jesus. He called people that did not believe the same things as him, the disciples, to follow him. People in those days, disciples chose their rabbi. Jesus chose the disciples. He said, follow. And he invited them to do this life with him. Does that mean that they had everything together? No. Two and a half years in, he said, who do you believe that I am? And some of them were still confused. Judas, the whole time, didn't really believe. Was there for the money and for the position of CFO. Invite, invite, invite. It's the way of Jesus. Number two, treat strangers as if they were Jesus standing in front of you. When you're at Tim Hortons for a coffee, when you're working with somebody you've never met before, treat them as if they're Jesus standing in the flesh in front of you looking at you. Because as you would treat the least of these, Jesus said, so you treat me. How you treat someone that doesn't love me is how you probably would treat me. Treat Strangers, as if they were Jesus in front of you. See yourself as a stranger. Switch up your identity. Rather than saying those strangers out there, say this stranger that is here. And what happened to this stranger? Jesus went, died for me. Next one. Understand you are a citizen of heaven who wants others to join you. Know your new identity. Show people what it means to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God. Don't see your citizenship as, I am a Canadian. Yes, you are. But primary, before you're a Canadian, you're a child of the Most High God. That's way cooler. Way cooler than being a Canadian. I mean, being a Canadian is awesome, but the Prime Minister Harper didn't go and die so I could live. He didn't. And he's not offering to yet. (laughs) So I'm going to follow the one that did. Jesus Christ. And then as a citizen, this is an obedience issue, not an option issue. If you are a follower of Jesus, okay, if you're one of those guys, hello brother, hello sister, but this is an obedience issue. It's not like, well, this one's kind of optional. Be a friend of sinners. I don't really feel like it. No, be one. This is an obedience issue, not an option issue. And then uh, this one. Judge inside, not outside. And remember according to Jesus. Judge not that you may not be judged. So judge yourself first. Do some introspection. Pray the Holy Spirit convicts you of things. And then be willing to approach somebody else in their sin if they call themselves a brother. And judge inside, not outside. God judges those outside. We are to be participants in the family of judging those inside. One way that we often phrase that in Church of the Ward is if you're a family member... And you're a contributor, there's certain things expected of a family, like parents who have kids. Uh, you know this. You don't do everything. At some point when your kids become of age, like not like the first couple of years probably, they're kind of uh, unfortunately somewhat useless. I mean, they bring tons of joy, but you are doing everything for them, right? Like my wife and I are pregnant right now in a couple months. Like some of the parents here that just had babies, like they don't do a lot for you. It's not like they're helping make dinner, none of those things. Like little Anderson back there, he's just lying there like on Matt's arm, like loving life. He brings joy to all of us when we look back at him and go, what a cutie. But other than that, like he doesn't... He He doesn't offer us a lot. But once you become old enough, and this is kind of like when someone first becomes a Christian, they're not going to be able to offer the family tons, like a little bit of service, a little bit of joy. But if someone becomes more mature, then we expect certain things of family members. Like, hey, you've been a Christian for like four or five years. Get your act together. Come on now. Like, let's let's do this thing. And then uh, next one, live as Jesus would have you live. Be bold as a believer. Live differently. Jesus was so, like, You have to remember this about Jesus, because sometimes I forget it. Sometimes I just think he's that friendly guy who wore, like, a robe or whatever. But Jesus was, like, a questionable guy at the time. Like, when people thought of Jesus, they thought he was satanic, and they thought he was a drunkard and uh, a glutton. Who is this guy? He just eats with people constantly. So we always say we're always up for a free meal because Jesus was, right? The area of hospitality, right? This is Jesus. We love the guy, and he was a strange, a strange person. So be strange. So the world looks at you and says, that person's a little bit different. What up? What up? right? Next one. This is really, really key, okay? And this is where I believe that we as Christians need to get right because I think that the reason that we are so judgmental and hypocritical and difficult is because we're super insecure. I don't think we actually believe that God does what he says he does. So the next one is this. Let God do what God does. If Jesus said that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, let him do the conviction. You don't need to do it he'll do it. If he is all-powerful, if he is all-powerful, folks, he can do what he wants. Because if it's me changing somebody else's mind about the person of Jesus, all it will take is someone smarter than me to convince them the other way. But if it is a person coming in contact with the living God, that's a hard thing to refuse because the law has been written on their hearts by God. So pray for people and let God do what God does. And then the last one, just love, period, Period. Period. Love, period. Acts 2 verse 47. This is what was said of the first church, the early church. And having favor with all people. They had favor with all people. People looked on them and thought, they're 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 cool. They're weird, but they're cool. I don't see them as judgmental, don't see them as hypocritical. Yes, they have standards because they're their own citizens, but they had favor with all people, regardless or not of whether or not people agree with us. Love, period. I'm so happy that the Lord has convicted me in the area of how I live in the world and how I love people who are not part of the church. I'm happy because God has been faithful and I've seen those who would characterize themselves as far from God. Really, God's there the whole time. But people would say, I was far from God and I came close to God because of the way, in God, the way that God has directed me to live. So you can be so filled with joy that when you start living and loving, that God will do what God does and people will come into the family. Because they'll say, I want a little bit of what that person has or I want what that community has to offer. Man, I really want this Jesus. Let's pray. If you're a person that has never, ever been adopted into this family called the family of faith, Christians, you can today be called a saint, you can be called his beloved, you can be called his child. And you can be welcome into the family. And then you have the role and responsibility of taking that beautiful gift and going to the world around you and living as a lover of people. Treating the stranger, being a friend to the stranger. Going where other people are unwilling to go. Because there's a little bit of intentionality with this too. How are you seeking out people that don't believe in Jesus? Intentionally. Not just working with them because you need a job. But actually saying, hey, hey, be welcome into my life. I love you because that's the exact same thing that Jesus did for you when you were a stranger to him. If you want to make that decision today, be adopted into the family, you can do that yourself. I don't need to lead you in a prayer because there's not one specifically laid out for us in the Bible. All that involves is confessing, repenting of your sin. If you just know, like, I am, I am I'm a sinner. If God has seen every single thing that I've thought and still loves me, that's pretty incredible. I need him. You believe Jesus is who he says he is, and then you say, Jesus, as my king, I want to follow you. That's all you need to do. And I've heard people say that in the most simplest of ways. And then you're in the family, and you will be welcomed with open arms. But if that's something you're not feeling yet, don't feel pressured. God's not done with you yet. Jesus has never failed anyone, and he's not going to start with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning to uh, get into your word, to go deep. Jesus, I pray that we would loosen the chains of the areas in which we just, we've got positions on things. We're not moving. Maybe, Lord, for me, I know it was my upbringing because, yeah, my family just, we didn't really love sinners all that much. Jesus, I thank you for breaking my heart in that area. I thank you for the work you're continuing to do because, Jesus, I still mess up at it all the time. But Jesus, you know that. You see it all. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. You're our dad. You've adopted us. You've chosen us. And for that, God, we're so, so grateful. Thank you for these churches. Thank you for giving James and I the responsibility of them and also the elders that come alongside of us. You are good. We love you. Amen. Amen. We are.